0: COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that preexisted the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. As we recorded this seventh episode of Under the Black Light, the official death toll from coronavirus in the United States surged past 70,000. Models show that the death toll will continue to claim the lives of 3,000 or more people per day well into the summer. Yet in the face of this horrific loss of life, the push to reopen the country grows louder and more threatening to lawmakers and civilians day by day. The threat in the form of increasingly militant armed protests is taking place in states across the nation. While tragedy and human carnage pervade every corner of American society, these protests repurpose the language of freedom to justify resistance to any notion of public welfare and the protection of human life. And whiteness seems to be a condition to these protests' very possibility. Anyone who remembers Black Lives Matter protesters being punished physically and rhetorically certainly can imagine a very different outcome had these protesters been gun-toting Black and brown folk. Symbols such as the Confederate flag and other racist signifiers make the presence of white supremacy in this backlash impossible to overlook. So our guests in this episode of Under the Black Light were all brought together to help us think critically about this fusion politic. They are Joe Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and author along with AAPF board member Daniel Hosang of Producers, Parasites, and Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. Alex DeBronco, the Executive Director of the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism joined us, along with Dorian Warren, the President of Community Change. We were also joined by journalist Jason Wilson, who writes about the far right in the U.S. for The Guardian, best-selling author Carol Anderson, chair of African American Studies at Emory University, and author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And finally, we were joined by Mab Seacrest, Professor Emeritus of Gender and Women's Studies at Connecticut College and author of Memoir of a Race Trader* and also the recently published Administrations of Lunacy, Racism and the Haunting of American Psychiatry at the Midgeville Asylum. So we dove in with Joe Lounge, who had attended some of the Reopen the Economy protests and wrote about it in the New Republic, specifically about the morbid ideology that he encountered in these protests.
1: You know, I'd expected to see a few dozen protesters, you know, kind of like a, you know, smattering of far-right individuals and groups. When I got there, it was extraordinary. There was hundreds and hundreds of people there. From around the state, I saw them coming up on the highway on my way up there, people together waving American flags, waving these uh, yellow Gadsden, don't Cut" on me flags, Trump banners and posters uh, everywhere. Uh, And there's hundreds of more people in a long parade of of cars and trucks playing, you know, kind of right-wing country music and blaring it out, you know, all over the place. As I said, you know, there was a range of people there. There were gun rights advocates, armed militia members, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, hardcore Trump supporters, people that you would expect to see, you know, kind of assembled at these kinds of um, what have become fairly regular right-wing rallies since Trump was elected. But along with this, there was a large number of you know, what look like working and middle class uh, white families with teenagers and small children in tow and babies and strollers, and really making this kind of a really a broad almost carnival-like event. Everybody was gathered together, no social distancing, nobody's wearing a mask. And there's kind of a, a sense of um, defiance of breaking through these social um, mores, uh, but also kind of a, a sense of rage. There are posters, you know, saying uh, Governor Brown is our governor here in Oregon, that she's a tyrant. And of course, these are people who are not experiencing the, the viral effects of the pandemic yet, although they are uh, experiencing some of the economic ones. But a- as it is at the moment, about half the counties in America have voted for Clinton in 2016, about half the U.S. population, a little bit more. They have experienced three quarters of the coronavirus cases and 80% of the deaths. And so there's also a political mapping here, which, which is connected to this, which, of course, is also its own form of racial mapping. And we can talk about the ways in which a, a racialized reshuffling of the, of the party system happens you know, over the last few decades. There's many ways in which race saturates this moment, and you really see it uh, in these protests.
0: So another protest that's gotten a lot of attention is the one that took place last Thursday in Michigan when scores of armed men showed up and stormed the state capitol building. No blood was shed, of course, at least not yet. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen with these protests in Michigan? I'm particularly interested in what your observations are about the fact that these vitriolic protests are composed predominantly of white men in a state that's led by a very high-profile female governor, and of course, there, there are women as well. But what are you seeing about the race and gender dimension of these protests?
2: Yeah, thank you, Kimberly. It's really notable that the protests intensified in this way, with the armed white men storming the Capitol in a state with a female governor. And we saw in this protest the use of the phrase "lock her up," which, of course, comes from 2016, directed against Hillary Rodham Clinton by Trump supporters. And now it seems like Gretchen Whitmer might be taking up that kind of position in the mind of the right wing. The phraseology of lock her up suggests that what she's doing, which is, of course, trying to protect residents of her state, is criminal behavior or corrupt behavior. And it goes with the conspiracist thinking that we've seen develop, which is similar in framing to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, that feminist elites are pulling the strings behind government, media, society, etc., for nefarious purposes of their own, which generally are considered an agenda of multiculturalism, political correctness, cultural Marxist. They don't believe that the COVID-19 pandemic is something that is a real danger, that is instead something that is either exaggerated or fabricated by feminist or Jewish or other types of liberal elites in order to pursue the purposes that they have. And Gretchen Whitmer herself has pointed out that although other governors have been critical of Trump, she's been uniquely singled out by the president for his attacks and he has referred to her disparagingly as the woman from Michigan amongst other uh, things, which is in line with the misogyny that he's displayed ever since 2016 and is really underwriting a lot of what we see in the right-wing movements that are mobilizing today.
0: And given some of the work that you've been doing, you've highlighted the fact that there are different strains of of right-wing organizing and that some of these are coming together in these protests. So what are the three strains in this converging protest movement that you've been seeing?
2: One is the accelerationist movements, the elements of white nationalism and neo-Nazis that just want to capitalize on anything that the destruction of society can bring about race war. And Cynthia Miller idris does a lot of work on that. And so they're willing to capitalize on things knowing that society will break down. The second strain is the really deep conspiracist kind of strain that is around feminism, that is around... Um, anti-semitism, and that they believe that there is no real medical purpose for these measures. They're the same people attacking Dr. Fauci as part of the medical deep state. And so they think in some way this is part of some multicultural feminist agenda around the corruption. And then the third strain are the things that are sometimes talked about that's more the libertarian kind of liberty aspect. That um, these are people who are, uh, and there's some overlap uh, in cases, but they're less likely to be conspiracists, but they're more likely to simply benefit from white privilege. They're the people who are not being hit as hard right now, and so they're willing to um, just feel like they shouldn't have to be penalized in order to help everybody else. And Rand Paul was a really good example of that early on, that when he had been tested, for coronavirus and hadn't received the results. He just went all around to the Senate gym and did whatever he wanted to because the government can't tell him what to do. And so I think we have those three strains going on that are all elements of white supremacy, but are interacting in, uh, in different ways and with different understandings of why they're doing this. One wants society to break down, one just thinks that this is all a big conspiracy and it's not true, and the third thinks, well, some of it's true and some's dangerous, but it doesn't really impact me and I am not gonna stand for it. And just lastly, while we're mostly discussing the in-person protests right now, speaking of recruitment, Recruitment is also happening by these types of organizations online, and with people in isolation spending more time on the internet, there's a particular concern for the increased risk of online radicalization into racist and misogynist movements that we've already seen as a significant aspect of the alt-right over the past years. And,
0: you know, of course, just to put a point on that, Dylan Roof, the a person who murdered so many people, Mother Emanuel, the story seems to be that he was radicalized by uh, engaging in internet. He was recruited and and radicalized in that context. Um, And so, you know, in in some sense, because there is the participation, as as you're talking about, Alex, these, you know, some of the explicit white, right-wing racist formations, it might make other modalities of ideological whiteness less legible for people to see. Joe, I wanna come back to you just for a second. So there are other aspects of this that would suggest that whiteness is a common register that's being deployed aside from the people in the quasi-racist uniforms. So what, what are some of the other dimensions of ideological whiteness that can be made legible in these protests?
1: none of this is possible without white supremacy. Like white supremacy really is the thing that makes it all go and makes it all possible and and continually underwrites it in all these ways, whether it's um, uh, Mitch McConnell talking about, you know, blue state bailouts to, you know, everything else all the way down. So that unless you have an analysis of white supremacy at the center of any understanding of the politics of, of the pandemic, then, 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 you know, then you're know, then you not gonna get anywhere. No one actually has to mention race. I mean, occasionally you see these Confederate flags, but no one has to mention race in a specific way for this stuff to be racialized. And so part of it is like our translation of like what uh, what that stuff means. To talk about government tyranny in these ways, or to talk about freedom to get back to work. You know, partly getting back to work is for some of these folks is not the same kind of like risky front lines uh, kind of work, but partly it's also about pushing this, agenda which is to make impossible the idea of social democracy or impossible the idea that you would have state interventions to care for people or to offer mutual aid or to keep people from harm it's the role of a kind of a racialized language which does all this broader economic work to make sure that we don't have a way forward care is feminine and maternal people's independence and people's freedom is seen as masculine and male, this kind of idea that we're autonomous people and that's the nanny state. And so that is kind of, I think that's like broadly discursively true, but even just, you know, I, my own experience of like having a mask on in like the local Safeway or Costco, you know, there's a way in which that men who come up in your space, when you're wearing a mask, it's says that it's meant to uh, emasculate. There's a way in which you, you know, uh, a certain kind of virility and vitality, which is really proto-fascist, is as this idea of like robustness and strength, which is um, masculinist and 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 really misogynist. So even at some like meta level, gender is, is key.
0: I wanna uh, move to you, Dorian. Alex and Joe talked a bit about what these protests look like on the ground, this sort of grassroots from bottom up effort to radicalize and, and aggregate all these grievances. but I think it would be a mistake to read these as spontaneous uprisings without reading them alongside deeply racist and xenophobic policies coming from the top, coming from the White House. So what's part of the backstory about a Stephen Miller-led project that's allowed to really flourish in this moment?
3: So yeah, if you don't know Stephen Miller's name, you should and immigration here is a case study of disaster white supremacy that you've been talking about, Kim, for many weeks now. And just as a little backstory, so two weeks ago, Trump signed an executive order restricting immigration for 60 days. The administration claimed it was a pause. Don't believe it. This was a long time in the making. It was a part part of a strategy, and they will try to make this permanent. So, So the question is, what's underneath this? This is ultimately a strategy of consolidation of minority white rule. It's a white power strategy, simply put. And it's geared towards a shrinking majority. And the idea here is to suppress the emergence of a multiracial left, uh, the the emergence of a multiracial social democracy. There are thousands of immigrants in detention centers now with no health care. There has been, from the beginning, a brutal policy of family separation. It's all very brutal, it's all cruel, it's all heartless. But there is a very cold political logic underneath the hate. So let me just take a minute to explain that. The New York Times earlier this week reported that Stephen Miller in the White House has tried before to use public health crises to um, leverage executive power to shut off immigration. He tried it once in 2018 when the migrant caravan reached the southern border. He was looking for evidence of, quote, illnesses or diseases to shut off immigration under public health pretenses. In 2019, there was an outbreak of mumps in immigration detention facilities in six states. He tried to do it then. In 2019, there were several Border Patrol stations that got hit with a flu outbreak. Tried it then. These were all trial runs at disaster white supremacy politics. From the very beginning in 2017 on Inauguration Day, Stephen Miller entered the White House with a list of 50 ideas. This was called his wish list. To ban immigration. And you might remember the Muslim bans early on. You remember the shithole countries comment from the president himself. This has been happening all along. And so this is now a crisis moment, right? Where they can use a disaster of racism, a disaster of white supremacy to enact ultimately their immigration aims. And to add to that, the conditions are even more right now when you think about let's just say a depression level unemployment. So it's a consolidation of white anger. It's to close off the border, essentially, to immigration. And Miller is strategic in using executive power and making what I would call non-trivial incremental steps and reversing over 50 years of immigration policy. When we talk about the 1960s, we often talk about the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, we talk about the 68 Fair Housing Act, all big victories of the Black Freedom Movement. We often forget the 65 Immigration Reform Act. And that is what opened the doors to immigration from people of color around the world who have been blocked for the history of this country. And so what you're seeing is an attack basically on the Voting Rights Act, and you're seeing an attack on the Immigration Naturalization Act, because that is, those two things are speeding up the loss of white power it's speeding up a multiracial majority and so at the end of the day this is a strategy around maintaining whiteness and white power along with oligarchy oligarchy is ruled by the rich few this would be ruled by the rich white few and it's the last thing i'll say on this kim it's it's not lost to me if you remember when mitt romney lost the presidential election in 2012 there was a republican party autopsy about what went wrong And there was a choice made in 16 with Trump. The choice Romney could have made was to try to expand whiteness, to try to recruit enough Latinx folks or enough Asian recent immigrants to the right over to the whiteness, because we've seen this before. Jews, Italians, Irish, we've seen whiteness expand before. This is a strategy that says, no, 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 we're not expanding whiteness, we're consolidating white minority power and keeping a hold on ruling this country for a very tiny, elite white few.
0: So we realized that the Republicans had a choice and their choice was not to expand, not to extend whiteness, but to really double down because, you know, it seems as though, for the time being, it's a winning strategy. So what I'm interested in is whether the other side of the aisle is fully prepared to take on disaster of white supremacy by actually uprooting it, by showing how whiteness is operating as the political glue that's now coming forward to hold together not just you know, this, the center to the right, but the center to the far right, the center to the nationalists, the, to the people who are trying to use this moment as a race war. Do we have the wherewithal to understand whiteness as something other than a fringe formation is something that's actually fueling this moment more than we've been willing to say in the past.
3: Kim, that is the question of the day, the week, the month, the year, the last, I don't know, 30 years in addition. I think it's sort of three steps here, right? You got to name it. You got to name the white supremacy and the white nationalism. You got to name it. Explicitly, too many liberals and progressives have been scared to do so. You got to name it. Step two, you got to point to the villains. Because I think as a longtime uh, reader and teacher of your work, Professor Crenshaw, it's so important for us to have the analysis of the structures of exclusion, marginalization, exploitation. It's important for us to have the structural analysis. But you got to you got to name some villains because people are making decisions. This is why I was naming Stephen Miller explicitly, who has been not just a mastermind in some conspiratorial way, he's, but he is obsessed and a zealot. And this has been all he lives for. He said in many interviews, he doesn't have a life. This is all he focuses on. So naming the villains is really important. So there's naming white supremacy, in this case, disaster white supremacy, naming the villains, and then pointing to what's our alternative vision? What does racial and gender justice look like in America that we've never quite accomplished? And how do we fight for it in this moment? And for me, it takes organizing. Thank you. Thank you, Dorian. And, And thank you everyone for getting us off to such a great
0: start. And then turn it over to Jason Wilson, Uh, Jason, you're a journalist uh, based out of the Pacific Northwest, where there's this kind of radically anti-democratic politics. So uh, Joe gave us a bit of a snapshot of what's happening in some of these recent protests. Can you tell us a little bit more from your broader lens of covering it? What are some of the common threads that you see running through them and now actually being stitched together in this
4: moment? You know, I've I've been working in this country for six or seven years now and, and reporting mostly on the right and the far right. And I feel like um, in these protests, I'm seeing a whole lot of things come together. First of all, you have the people who are involved in this and leading this um, are often just the same people who've been involving themselves either in um, pro-Trump protests or other kinds of militant activity on the radical right. So Ammon Bundy has been a prime mover in Idaho, leading anti-lockdown protests there. Um, he actually compared Idaho's lockdown to the Holocaust in, in a speech on the weekend. But yeah, it's, just, it's there, there are, there's a certain group of people who, who are involved in this, who have been doing this kind of stuff for years. There's also a significant number of people from white supremacist groups turning up at these things um, and taking on a kind of aesthetic that, we, that comes out of contemporary neo-Nazism, the sort of siege culture aesthetic. There's a really strong involvement on the part of the anti-vaccination movement. Um, so a lot of these protests are actually organized by anti-vaxxers. It's becoming more and more integrated to right-wing politics in, in the Western states and, and elsewhere to some extent. There's a lot of social media manipulation happening, and there's a lot of organizing on social media platforms that say they've already dealt with this problem. So they're clearly being built from a template, and some of them are really big. Some of them have got 40,000, 50,000 people signed up to them, and it's just a fire firehose of, of content, full of conspiracy thinking, full of denialism, I guess, of science and medicine, you know, really full of... Uh, hostility towards governors on behalf of the president. There are dark money groups involved with this. So the people who have been leading Idaho's really quite uh, militant uh, anti-lockdown movement are called the Idaho Freedom Foundation. And they're part of, a, you know, the state policy network, which is a kind of national network of right-wing think tanks that gets money from, you know, the usual places, the Kochs, the Coors Foundation. And there's also Uh, This dynamic that we've seen throughout the the Trump years where people from white people (laughs) from rural or suburban uh, areas are either making incursions into more liberal and diverse cities or they're opposing themselves to that. And I think the dynamic I'm seeing in Michigan in particular is really pretty disturbing uh, in that Detroit, you know, has, has had a really rough time of it. Rural Michigan, which is much wider and more conservative, has not had such a bad time, and that's basically the opposition we're seeing reproduced,
5: you know, in the rallies
4: in Lansing. And and I would go so far as to say that this is really, in large part, just the pro-Trump movement entering another phase. Having said that, up until now, these folks have, in a lot of cases, have never managed to organize events that are this big, you know. So so these are the biggest events that a lot of them have ever spoken to in in Michigan in particular, but uh, also in Colorado. Um, There were were two and a half thousand people in Olympia a couple of weeks back, Olympia, Washington. A a local guy who's organized a lot of protests with, you know, alongside the Proud Boys and stuff, Joe Gibson spoke to that. And that would be four or five times larger than than any protest he's managed to speak to before. This crisis has put the wind at the backs of the far right. The Patriot movement, you know, uh, white supremacist extremists, they're not only um, coalescing and cooperating and organising together around a particular cause, but they're, as, as Joe mentioned, they're rubbing shoulders at these events with, you know, rank-and-file conservatives who've brought their kids along in strollers and up until now have, have not been involved in this kind of radical um, armed protest. Yes,
0: yes. Let me um, turn now to Carol. So you're in Georgia. One could say that we're looking at a startling slide, uh, slide to authoritarianism, slide into, you know, frankly, white political dictatorship in a lot of these places. So you're kind of in ground zero. So what's been striking to you about what you're seeing unfolding right there in Georgia?
6: One of the things that I wrote about in White Rage um, in the epilogue, was that the whole goal is to create a a kind of neo-apartheid state that and that's what dorian was really nailing down there that to find a way to create a vast rightless labor pool who generate enormous resources and wealth and then that wealth is then siphoned up into a small strata of whites now A larger number of whites believe that they're going to be a beneficiary of that, but they're not. That's not the way that system is constructed. And this is what we're seeing when we began to kind of lay out how the coronavirus is intersecting with employment rights and employment discrimination, how it is intersecting with voting rights. And I'll just pull up a couple of examples here. In Georgia, One, Governor Brian Kemp did not do what was necessary in order to shut the state down when the coronavirus hit. Instead, this thing gained enormous traction to the point where the CDC reported that 80% of those hospitalized with the coronavirus were African-American. Now, what he does in order to open the state is to do a partial opening. Now that partial opening didn't include Rolls-Royce dealerships. It didn't include Tiffany Jewelers. It didn't even include tanning salons. What it did include were beauty salons, nail salons, gyms, massage parlors, tattoo parlors, and bowling alleys. And you have a couple of things working here. One is that the state doesn't want to pay unemployment, and it was figuring out who was, who was applying for unemployment benefits. The second thing is that you see a racial and class distinction in the places that Georgia has decided to open up, in the places that Brian Kemp has decided to open up. And what that does then is it places these folks right in the middle of what I call a coronavirus firing line. That firing squad is aimed right at these particular populations that are already vulnerable because of systemic inequalities. The kinds of systemic inequalities that Brian Kemp did not feel necessary to begin to address when he then told them to go back out there and go to work. So they have to choose. I work or I stay home. I stay home and I save my life. We're also then seeing the, the voting component. And that is absolutely critical in this election year of 2020, because this is one of those election moments where we're going to decide. They, they talked about it in Germany in 1848 that being a, a time where history failed to turn. And we're going to ask ourselves is 2020 going to be that moment where history fails to turn? Where this, this grinding authoritarian white supremacist regime embeds itself deeper and further into the body politic until it has shredded even the remaining vestiges of democracy? Or is there a place for the people to fight back? That's what's on the line in this election. And so we saw that up in Wisconsin. We saw a democratic governor trying to shut the state down and trying to move the primary so that people did not have to choose between you vote, you die. Kind of like, let's not do that old Jim Crow thing, where we had like in in Georgia, where in Taylor County, where uh, there was a sign over the door that basically said in 1946, the first Negro that votes, that'd be the last thing he ever does. And so Maceo Snipes voted and he was shot down.
0: I'm struck by what um, you're saying, Carol, in in part the choices that are being presented, you know, your vote or your life or your work on your life. There's so many ways in which this is such a throwback to pre Reconstruction. You go to work because you have to, you know, Uh, you take your life into your own hands uh, by going uh, to work or you face destitution if you are not. So this is just a huge power grab. It's a huge effort to force people, coerce them into work in unsafe conditions. And it's so much of what the entire 20th century was spent trying to unravel. The sad thing is that while one can tell the story as a story of labor being exploited, there's also a piece of this called lost causism that seems to be constantly available to be invoked uh, to provide wages of whiteness and you know, some connection to a history that is now being celebrated. So Mab, you are a child of the South. What can you tell us in, in three minutes about the rich and unmined history of lost causes and that's being amplified and activated in this current moment?
5: Thanks, Kim, for inviting me. Happy birthday. I wanted to talk, as my part of it, about what we see from the South. This guy, Edward Pollard, wrote a book called The Lost Cause in 1867 that became the ex-Confederate playbook, and he was trying to suss it out. So he says, well, um, there's two things that we will concede. We lost the war, not going to try that again, and slavery um, is over. Emancipation has happened, and we're not going to go back on that. But there are certain things we will not concede. One of these was Negro equality. The second thing not to be conceded was Negro suffrage. And the third thing to be insisted on was states' rights. Two years later, he did a revision called The Lost Cause Regained, showed how fast things were moving. And he said, really, though, it was all about race war. So you have all of those things plus race war. And I think that those are redolent today behind and within all of this stuff. I helped some last week with some of the messaging and kind of jailed support that didn't happen because nobody was arrested for 12 nurses standing out kind of in stoic um, confrontation, um, drawing out the kind of crazier and caricatured elements of the folks who had come in. There was a lot of stuff around hair (laughs) Um, and a lot of it was trivialized, but I felt like further back in the audience, probably that I didn't see were the kind of families and the, the mainstream that these folks are trying to draw in and we would like for them not to have drawn in too. And I can just imagine that church people are pretty big in that because they haven't been able to go to church. So that was part of it. And just the sense of like we're all essential workers without having a sense that but essential workers means you have to go to work where you could die because other people need to stay alive. Not that somebody needs a haircut. You know, so it was a kind of odd mixture of things. Um, There were no guns that I saw. I mean, the Republicans are in control of the legislature. It's not like they need to bring the guns to the legislature. So it's a cleaned up version of rebellion. But in the South, the Confederacy is the rebellion. And in the United States, the Confederacy is the huge white rebellion. So you don't get away from the Confederacy. And George Wallace proved, too, the stuff about racism when he came out of the South. Having been the main and one of the main voices against integration and stirred up all kinds of violence, and he took his campaign north and he got lots and lots and lots and lots of support from the north to prove Yankee hypocrisy on these questions of race, for one thing, but that racism was not just a southern problem. I mean, I think it was Malcolm X that said the South, anything south of the Canadian border, and you got up south, down south, and out south. You know, so I don't feel like when, I mean I'm saying this because partly because three of my great-grandfathers were Confederate veterans. But I've just spent 15 years out of the South in Connecticut and New York, and then I've come back to Durham. Um, and even for me, I have been stunned by the salience of the Confederacy here. And there's this whole group of neo-Confederate organizations called Taking Back, like Alamance County, Taking Back Alamance County, and they have huge Confederate flags, and they are for secession. So there's that kind of dissolution sense, I think, that kind of disillusionment with government, profound disillusionment with government, but partly because the Republicans have gotten in since what we call neoliberalism and just deconstructed this, just sucked every human thing out of it and put it in prisons and put it in police. And so the healthcare system falls apart and everything falls apart and they can blame that then on the government rather than them being the fox in the hen house, which they have been at least since Reagan.
0: So, so Mab, one of the things that I think a lot of folks don't really appreciate is, is the role, the constitutive role that women have played in helping to burnish the legacy of the lost cause, make it contemporary in the 20th century, and give it legs so that it can be picked up on uh, now. And of course, there are a lot of women that we see in these protests. But what is it that people may not appreciate about how you know, the lost causes was taken up largely by white women and and made it into an ideological source of this idea of, you know, I'm free, I'm white, and I'm not going to be told what to do anymore.
5: Well, certainly white women were behind a lot of the monumental dimensions of the lost cause, remembering the Confederacy, uh, which by that time, though, the lost cause had been won. I mean, white supremacy by, by 1910 was segregation, Jim Crow, were all across the South, voter suppression was in place. I mean, all of those things that Pollard had said in 1867 were in place. And these monuments to Confederate soldiers like Silent Sam at UNC and all across the country were just claiming this public space. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which my mother initially <laughs> kind of joined me up to very early and I'm disaffiliated, but was in charge of a lot of those monuments too. And the whole kind of sentimental aspect of it and the plantation mythology and all of that was very much promoted by some white women. It's important to remember, though, that Southern wives did food strikes by 1863 because they were starving because there wasn't enough food and the Confederacy was not providing for its women. So it's a complicated kind of legacy, but definitely women, white women have been up in there the whole time.
0: Indeed, and, and part of what we're trying to grapple with is the complicated dimension of the legacy because we're fully aware of the fact that the planner class and, and their political enablers weren't often, or for the most part, deeply invested and concerned in the lives and the well-being of free whites, of poor whites. At the same time, the, the wages of their racial identity uh, many times seemed to pay enough to them so, so that they would support a system that does not support them. So we never have really been able to fully figure this out, never been fully able to sustain over decades a solidarity politics that doesn't just ignore whiteness, but sustains solidarity through a critique of it. Um, so this seems to be the moment that that politic needs more now than ever to uh, find some life, to come to life, and and be a significant factor in that. So we're going to turn to that conversation in the round table, but before we do, we want to check in one last time with the Awoye and see if there are any questions for our panelists from the audience. Lawyer,
6: Yeah, thank you so much again, everybody, for your time and the invigorating conversation. Questions from a number of people wondering um, if the panelists have any information in terms of who is financing these anti-stay-at-home protests, and on the other side, people kind of highlighting the efforts of Instacart and Amazon workers and nurses? And lastly, what is the effort of the right wing to move the courts further to the right? How does that also bear on this conversation?
0: Thank you, Awoy. So let me take the one question about who's sponsoring, where's the funding for this coming from? Is it really spontaneous and just things that are happening on the fringe or are there fingerprints on this that allow us to read more broadly the political implications of what we're seeing? Uh, so
4: Jason, Joe? I've certainly discovered links uh, between these protest movements, uh, which give the appearance of spontaneity, and uh, GOP-linked dark money groups, nonprofits. profits Certainly, uh, the broader right is trying to direct, trying to get a handle on this movement and, and push it in particular directions. And... I think the main thing, the main opportunity that a lot of them would see in this would be uh, just the opportunity to do some wedge politics and to, you know, disrupt uh, the political mileage that some governors were getting out of their, democratic governors were getting out of their handling of this situation. And also to shift blame from the president to the, those governors for, for the economic slowdown. So I think that's the opportunity that they see and uh, yes, there's there's the Koch brothers. There, they certainly in, in Idaho is, is an example, and and Michigan for that matter. There are you know nonprofits who who do take money from donors' fund and the cause foundation and and stuff like that, who are who are leading these protests. So certainly, they're there. Um, they're trying to push it in the directions that are congenial to them. But it's a I think it's a kind of push-pull. I think that um, there is a sort of Uh, reservoir of of public opinion, it's small, it's relatively small, and we need to keep saying that as well. Mostly these measures are quite popular, but there is a reservoir of of opinion out there and a form of activism that they're pretty well practiced in that that we're seeing in this moment that right-wing elites aren't necessarily wholly in control of. But I I wonder what Joe thinks about that.
0: Yeah, and and Joe, as you take that up, I, I guess I do want to know how we should handle the critique on one hand that the media have been blowing this up, we see, you know, protest after protest, and it gives the impression that there is sort of an organic uprising when in fact, these are in some ways photo ops rather than, you know, uh, a reflection of something that, that is, you know, uh, newsworthy for anything other than that. So how do we think about that while at the same time, not minimize that white supremacy is having a huge photo op right now and it's being linked to political rhetorics that take it further into the center than we've seen in in quite some time. How do we hold both of these at the same time?
1: Mm, mm -hmm. It is true that these are, you know, as yet small protests, as, as Jason said. But, you know, on the other hand, just last weekend, there was something like 160 of these around the country. They weren't huge, but they weren't tiny, uh, many of them. So I think, you know, part of the way to think about this is that this is something in motion and we're getting a snapshot of a movement that could go any number of directions and might grow quite large or will, or, or in any case will morph and transform over time. But I think your, the, your question or your point about how this is connected to the center of American politics or the center of the Republican Party is really the key one. You can see from the the White House through Republicans in the Senate, through red state governors, all the way down. There is kind of a coherent sense of mobilizing white supremacy towards a series of ends that's gonna defend elite power and elite privilege. They're gonna do everything they can at this point to stave off the possibility that they've got to redistribute wealth, that they've got to extend unemployment benefits. There's all kinds of things that that um, that they're going to try to stop in this moment because economic consequences are becoming more dire. And of course they realize that. So they need to find ways to enlist a large enough percentage of the white electorate to keep them on track, keep them doing their bidding. And so these pro- one way to see these protests is as, a, as an open expression of a certain kind of white supremacist ideology and a certain kind of affective expression of anger and um, of the disorientation that a lot of whites feel economically for starting to experience economic effects that black and brown people Uh, have forever. So I think that we got to see this as connected to these larger pushes. And it's, you know, some of the stuff coming out, as Dorian said, coming out of the White House is every bit as alarming and every bit as extreme as what we see, you know, in the Michigan State Capitol. So in a way, uh, these things are all kind of connected together, regardless of how large the protests are at this point.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, the the question still remains, you know, when we say every bit as alarming, I mean, it is, I think every bit is alarming to see decisions being made to allow people to die. And it's hard not to uh, speculate that part of what makes this seem palatable is because of the sense of, first of all, who is most vulnerable, particularly in this wave and how even if this wave turns into a wave of massive, massive white death, the fact that now it's already been framed as a disorder, a disease that primarily uh, wreaks havoc in communities of color will provide uh, backlash and scapegoat opportunities. So in a way, it's hard to think of mass death being seen as a win-win you know, situation, but there is a sense in which it's like, we can open up we can allow the mass death to happen and then when it finally you know hits rural communities and white folks we have a you know common fallback position what i'm particularly interested in is how these performances of masculinity that you talked about, Joe, can be mapped into an understanding of these rallies as also an expression of male supremacy. And so for that, I want to come back around to you, Alex, and and Carol, if you have some thoughts on this as well, to get you in on it. And we know that when the state uh, becomes associated with a more multicultural kind of function, there's an uptick in anti-statism. It's sort of you know, like uh, blockbusting or, or white flight, white folk who are embodying this ideology of the status for us, hardworking, red-blooded Americans, when this other stuff it does benefits other people, we don't like it, so we want to pull the plug on it. But we also see it when it comes to uh, gender. So when the state is associated with guns and the military and bombs, there's this surge of patriotism and rallying around the flag but when it's associated with care um when it's uh, associated with the public good public health using the power you know of the state to enhance the well-being for all of us then there's a rise in anti-statism and it's talked about in gender terms like the anti-nanny you know state the critique of social welfare as i don't need a you know, someone telling me what to do. So I'm wondering whether these are just, you know, superficial dimensions of the way that gender is playing out, or if there is a deeper investment in patriarchy and in misogyny that we have to identify fueling much of what we're seeing in these protests.
2: Definitely, there is a deep investment in patriarchy and misogyny. The decision by President Trump and Vice President Pence to not wear masks when they were out and about on their tours was really indicative of that kind of macho masculinity portrayal that is embedded in our culture. And some of that is just within the structures of patriarchy. But some of it is within the ideologies of conspiracy theories. Feminists, which becomes just sort of all Western women for a lot of these groups, are implicated as the people who are feminizing their countries. And in feminizing their countries and the men in their countries make it possible for immigrants to invade. And so um, this operates on a continuum. And there is an embedded issue of of masculinity and opposition to feminization that exists broadly not only on the right but on the left as well and then there's also a dimension that has been growing as the feminist movement itself has been more successful in past decades in which women or feminists become the enemy and there's something greater at stake around male supremacism that is embedded in this mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and so we have a performance of masculinity uh, that projects outwardly the vulnerability to this disease. And Joe, you mentioned that even you know in the store wearing the mask, there is a dance that you have seen and expect to see. You know, playing out between men. And then there's this idea that if the disease is disproportionately impacting people of color, there must be some vulnerability that's embedded. But that also means that there must be some protection against the disease that is associated with with whiteness, with doing the right things, with having the right rugged individualism. And so some of the the folks listening uh, really want to know about what are the parameters of white anti-racism how are white folks fighting back against this right wing? And so for that, of course, ma'am, I want to, you know, hear from you on that. And then um, Carol and and Dorian, I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that fighting back against white ideological uh, uses of privilege and conceptions of freedom that are built on white baselines has been a hard thing to do even among progressives. So do you all see in this moment examples or preparation to actually bring uh, whiteness conversations into our aspirations for you know, things like um, uh, universal health care into our conversation about how globalization is undermining the economic well-being of all of us. So let me uh, step back for a moment and, and ask Mab to jump in and then let's hear from Dorian and Carol.
5: Well, my examples are, again, from the South, and there are very vibrant um, efforts within Southern organizations that incorporate white people. Uh, and one of the ones I know the best about is Southerners on New Ground, which started off 27 years ago. as kind of a liberatory queer organization and has come abolitionists has done ending money bail and the carceral prison system is a key component of it. it and We've had white people within this increasingly black and brown feminist led leadership. And most recently, Song has started um, Song Power Electoral Arm. And is one of its goals is to take on Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, who has a very vibrant challenge from Jamie Harrison. And Song wants to work with, Song white people will work with white people in South Carolina to try to make the case that Graham has been anti-poor, anti-labor, anti-female, all these things, and to really try to carve off 50,000 white people whose votes they could swing because we know the Democratic Party's not going to do that. So that's an, an experiment with our white constituency within this multiracial and black-led organization, black and brown organization. The other formation I'm familiar with is Showing Up for Racial Justice, which was founded in in 2010 at the advent of the Tea Party, uh, when what many white activists whose friends of color were saying, y'all need to do something, a series of phone calls and, and Surge is the a white component of organizing white people within the white community in alliance and flanking movements of color. And Surge now has chapters all over the country. There've been huge surges. Um, so to speak, after the Black Lives Matter and all the police shootings and then with Trump and so forth. And Surge takes on political education with white people, community to community, state to state. It does interventions, how white people take responsibility for dismantling it, both in our consciousness, but also in the structures of the country.
0: Thank you. Um, Carol, let let me, um, you have the floor and and let me also add a, a couple of other comments that people had uh, raised. Uh, Mary Smith has said that uh, Georgia's Labor Commissioner, Mark Butler, stated that people can still receive unemployment even if they uh, are called back to work and don't want to go. So she asked, is you know, this a misrepresentation? So I wanted just to add that to the overall you know, question of, are we ready to, to actually interrogate uh, the role of whiteness in undermining our solidarity with each other? So, Carol.
6: I think one of the the key things, and I'm going to come at this through voting rights, by using what sounds reasonable, such as, you know, we've got to protect the integrity of the ballot box, because we've got all this massive rampant voter fraud. Then you get a series of policies that look race neutral, and that you have a kind of sense that they are protecting democracy when, in fact, they're targeted at minorities, they're targeted at African-Americans, they're targeted at Asian-Americans, they're targeted at Native Americans, they're targeted at Hispanics. And that is part of what makes the solidarity building so tough is the power of the marketing of the soundbite and the power of the kind of veneer of respectability behind really malevolent policies. And so it requires us to ask the next question. So when the head of labor uh, says in Georgia, sure, anybody can do that if they don't want to go back, then how many have? And how does that process work? Because what we know are that people who have tried have been blocked. This is why it makes it so difficult, because the folks on the ground who are dealing with the hell that is raining down on them via policies are then being sloughed aside as if their lived experiences aren't real, because the policymaker said, because you've got the veneer of respectability, the veneer of legitimacy, and the veneer of power delegitimizing what is actually happening. So it's the way that a Supreme Court can just blithely act like there is not a pandemic happening when it tells voters in Wisconsin Well, if you don't have your absentee ballot in by tomorrow, then, you know, these that way sometimes. You know, one of the things that I I have talked about in voting, for instance, is that when Obama was elected the first time and the second time, one of the things that we heard was that we are now in a post-racial society because how racist can America be? Because we elected a Black man twice to the White House. Well, what that we meant, actually, was that we, the majority of whites, voted for Obama. But that's not what happened. In fact, the majority of whites did not vote for Obama, neither in 2008 nor in 2012. In fact, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964. And that includes the sons of the South, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. So what put Obama in the White House? You had a significant number of whites, but you had an incredible ground game that brought 15 million new voters to the polls, overwhelmingly African-American, Hispanics, Asian-Americans, young, and the poor. And that actually became the hit list for voter suppression. And so the blows that are being taken make it tough. And that is why Organizations like SONG are so important, and organizations like Project South, so important for the work that they do in building those coalitions, so that we can actually envision what America could be as a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, vibrant democracy, and not one that is a neo-apartheid state.
0: So you, you speak about coalition and the possibilities. And of course, that's exactly what we're all hoping to uh, facilitate. And one of the ways in which we try to do that is asking uh, some of the difficult questions. So Dr. Uh, Angeles Montanado has a question. Um, what about undocumented folks who are unemployed and unable to work or get unemployment? How do we reconcile that there are undocumented people who are in need of work just to survive? So, uh, Dorian, um, uh, I wanna come back to you on that. I already had the one question queued up, but I wanted to also uh, throw that one in the mix as well.
3: Yeah, um, it's such a good question. Look, for all of you that had a meal today, you have an undocumented worker somewhere to thank, whether it's someone who's sick in a meatpacking plant or farm workers who are picking produce still, this is how we are actually interdependent. And we have to be thinking about what are, and I'm gonna use your term, Kim, what are the intersectional solidarities we need to build at this, in this moment? Um, and Joe, I wanna rip off Joe for a minute because you, you said that on both the left and the right possibilities open up, and I agree with that. And, and Professor Anderson mentioned the word power several times, and I want us not to lose sight of power here, because we often confuse it with presence. And I'm reminded by this, um, my good friend Rashad Robinson over at Color of Change makes his point a lot. Look, Black folks have a lot of cultural presence. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna watch Michelle Obama's show right after this, but we don't have a lot of power. And we mistake, we mis- mistake presence for power. And so when you start to unpack what does power mean, this gets at your previous question, Kim. We might think of ideological and narrative power, there is always disruptive power, there is electoral power, there is governing power. We have to interrogate all these systems of power and build our own to fight back because I think this is a moment, not necessarily around persuasion, this is a moment about power and defeating the right, full stop. There is a lot that all of us on this call, I think it's like a thousand in this webinar, we can all in our, wherever we are, we can all be taking action to disrupt forms of dominant power and build forms of collective power that advance freedom and justice. And there are lots of things to do. I'll post something in the chat around some digital organizing tools that people can download, but there's a lot that we can do with this moment to build solidarities, particularly intersectional solidarities across race, gender, disability, et cetera.
0: Thank you, Dorian. So I wanna ask our remaining panelists, what are the actions? What are the steps? I'm gonna start with Joe, Joe, what are you seeing? What are you working on? What are you holding up as uh, an exemplar of the kind of work that this analysis makes necessary?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think all this work looks different in different places, in different locations and, and certainly in different regions. Um, you know one of the things here, the Oregon economy itself has really, you know, it, with, with the end of the timber industry, really just kind of fell apart. So you've got whole segments of the state, whole counties, where there's uh, no public libraries. No 911 service, no law enforcement, no first responders, and you know, so kind of like forms of state abandonment. And partly, what's happened is that the militias have moved into these spaces with kind of like, I guess you could call it, kind of a settler colonial kind of ideology that you know, without the help of the state or really against the state, we can reorganize kind of uh, white society. And the thing is, they have actually they have gone into the, these places abandoned by capital and built their own kinds of responses. And so there's groups here like uh, a great one called the Rural Organizing Project, which has really worked hard to compete with the militias for kind of a, a, you know, a radical, a vision that's anti-racist. It actually began around struggles around um, anti-gay uh, ballot propositions, also around embracing migrants and immigrant uh, workers and families. And so partly, you know, Oregon is getting less white all the time, but it's still a very white state. By design, it was a white territory, and it was, you know, still seen as a white utopia by neo-Nazis and other folks. Undoing a lot of stuff that's there has to be done before you can begin to have kinds of, you know, forms of solidarity, because there's a lot of, a lot of different kinds of work to be done. So that's a little bit what it looks like on the ground here, both um, in rural Oregon, but also in Portland, where you've got strong right-wing movements.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Joe. And thank you for getting this conversation going. Jason, um, you've been covering this and this is a a new moment. So what news do you have? What direction can you share with us in about 30 seconds?
4: Um, I I don't know if I I made it clear before, I think a lot of this movement, it's being um, co-opted in some senses because it might be useful in deferring accountability for certain people and and allowing certain people to avoid responsibility responsibility for what's happening. The sense I'm getting is that, uh, you know, actually a lot of people aren't buying it and and a lot of people are demanding accountability and and that someone take responsibility for it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's part of the reason why these protests are so shrill and and so um, soaked with irrationalism. rationalism. So I, I have some hope, actually, that there is gonna be a kind of reckoning uh, at the end of this uh, sometime soon.
0: Thank you so much. We'll be keeping up with your coverage. Alex.
2: What I do wanna highlight is, I think that there's a, a little bit of an overemphasis on the left on what was brought up before funding and astroturfing, um, which distracts us from the grassroots organizing that's being done, but also the, infrastructure building over time. And taking the approach that we take at the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism with looking at um, the intersection of male supremacism with other issues of white supremacy, of anti-trans ideologies and such, is that I recommend more alliances across different sectors. Betsy DeVos, and of course the DeVos's are part of the funders behind some of these movements, just today released new Title IX regulations that really gut protections for survivors. And that issue has been a key priority for the Trump administration because it is a key priority of men's rights activists. A lot of the areas where we learn about patriarchy, in schools through sex education or abstinence only education programs that promote gender stereotypes are also interlinked with the textbook movements that have pushed back against content in textbooks that would be multiracial, that would call out the history of white supremacy in the United States. And so I recommend just looking at those kinds of structures looking especially in the long view at something like schools and how impactful organizing on school boards has been for the right um, in an area where the left is not looked at as much and making those linkages where we're working holistically Across issues of misogyny and male supremacism, with xenophobia and white supremacism, with anti Semitism, and taking that approach of dealing with them all together, because those issues are all interlinked on the side that we are trying to fight against.
0: Thank you. And lastly, uh, Carol, you know, there's so much history that we want to to talk about, but in closing, uh, where might you direct the buffs in the group to look to see the fingerprints of this moment? What historically would you leave us with to understand this moment and, you know, be inspired by our ability in the past to survive, to get to this point?
6: Um, I would look at my book, White Rage, because we see the patterns there and we see the ongoing resistance to white supremacist-driven policies. And I would say, register to vote and vote because that is how we begin to also change what is happening to us. That is what we have seen is that when you can change the policymakers, you're going to get policies that are much more human rights-based that are much more holistic, that are much more powerful in the ways that they embrace our full humanity than this mess we've got going on right now.
0: Thank you, thank you, Carol. Thank you all for joining us. Of course, this wouldn't have been possible without all of the panelists, Joe Lowndes, Jason Wilson, Alex DeBronco, Dorian Warren, Mab Seacrest, and Carol Anderson. We invite you to join us over Zoom for the next episode of our series this Wednesday. More information and an RSVP link are available at our website, aapf.org. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Sarah Ventry. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
4: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. In the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We gotta attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new
3: episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.